have your Bible with you, or perhaps you've got a pew Bible. This morning, Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read a couple of verses here, and then we're going to flip on to John chapter 4, and Nigel's going to preach on the seventh commandment, and God's Word here will help us think about it this morning. So Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 27. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is preaching, and this is his word, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And then turn with me over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we arrive in this passage. uh, This uh, section of the text is the encounter of Jesus with the woman at the well. And if you're not familiar with that story, this lady, Jesus encounters her at a well uh, and uh, She has had a string of relationships. Uh, She has had five previous husbands, and now she's with her sixth, uh, and uh, she is broken, and Jesus comes, and he meets with her. So we're going to break into the text here at chapter 4 and verse 16. Jesus says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband She replied, and Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Then come with me to verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Amen. You see in this passage of text what happens. The woman gets converted. She meets Jesus in the midst of her brokenness, in the midst of her sin, and he calls her to worship. Uh, And we look forward to tonight's opening this up for us a little bit later. Well, it's uh, hard to suggest where to turn to because we're going to be moving around the the scriptures a little bit, but you might want to have Matthew 5 open, Jesus' commentary on the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Last Sunday night, you might remember that we were looking at actually the Eighth Commandment, Do Not Steal. And there was a visitor here, a chap uh, uh, who I ended up chatting to afterwards, and he seemed to appreciate the service. And he said, you know, I'm not really sure I've ever been called a thief before in church. And I says, well, come back. I'll call you a sinner in all sorts of different ways. Uh, And that's one of the things, I guess, that we're seeing with these commandments. Uh, They are not calling us, but they are uncovering the fact that in a whole myriad of ways we we fall uh, short. But, But then we are directed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and mercy. And that's where we're going to end uh, this morning. This is an incredibly important subject, incredibly sensitive subject. Uh, let me just say that, that here is a commandment that none of us can look at and walk away from and say, well, at least I've obeyed that one. All of us have sinned 
sexually. And that's important to say right at the outset. We're we're going to uh, just step through this very, very simply this morning. We're going to look at what this commandment tries to protect, what it prohibits, and then what we should do, some practical things uh, at the end. So what does it protect? What what does this commandment about adultery protect? Well, we've seen this, that that where a commandment... uh, it says something negative. It also implies something positive, that there's something that we are to uh, protect or to encourage or whatever. And, and here it is, marriage that is to be uh, protected. And here we're thinking then a little bit about the purpose of marriage. Now, I'm not sure in my lifetime that this has ever been more important. The Bible's teaching on marriage, as Peter was suggesting earlier, is incredibly challenged now more than any time in recent decades. And we must understand that we're living in that soup and through all the media that we receive and the communities that we live in, uh, we, we find a very, very different story is being told to us in the biblical story about marriage. And, and we soak that up much, much more than we think we do, and we probably don't realize it. Now, wh- what does the Bible say about, about marriage? Well, uh, we want to make there's a few very, very sketchy points. Stuart Elliott, one, one uh, author says that when Jesus came along in Matthew 5 and spoke about marriage, he was standing on an accepted platform of biblical teaching that had been there for a thousand years, all the Old Testament teaching. And here are the seven points that he mentions. Marriage is not an invention of society, but a design of God which has existed from creation. The sexual act is to be restricted to marriage. Marriage is a lifelong a, a, a partnership between one man and one woman, although it recognized, of course, that in some circumstances, divorce could take place. Marriage is not to take place between believers and unbelievers. No one is to marry closer than a blood cousin. Marriage is voluntary and not obligatory, and marriage is to be entered into by public ceremony. So, so those things, in, in a sense, sum up the Bible's teaching, and Jesus comes and stands on that platform and speaks about marriage. Let me, let me highlight a couple of key principles, some that come from here and some that are perhaps then additional. This thing about it being designed by God. You remember that in Genesis 2, before the fall, God creates Adam. It says that, that no suitable helper for him was found, and God creates uh, the woman, Eve, and she is a helper. And it's the same word that's used most often as God's help for us in the Old Testament. So never think of that phrase helper as in any way a weak thing. It's, it's God is my help. Eve is my help, according to Adam. I love Matthew Henry's explanation of this. Eve was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. You notice that, that uh, Adam was asleep when God does this. You find that lots of important things happen when men are asleep. And, and what, what does that imply? Well, it implies that God does not need Adam's input. God does not consult Adam. In other words, God knows exactly what he needs. And he brings Eve to Adam. And in that first marriage, Adam's blown away. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he says. Now, God designed all of this. He designs it for all people. It's, it's there before the fall of man, and, and, and therefore it, it is what we sometimes call a creation ordinance. It, it is the building block of society, whether society acknowledges God or not. 
And the point is, of course, because God has designed it, we are not at liberty to change it or redefine its nature. That's very much what society is saying today. They're, they're saying, it's saying that, that, well, we just think that marriage is a social construct. It's a happy way of being together for some people. But it's not binding, and maybe it's less relevant, so we can change it. But, but that's to go absolutely against its purpose. And, and it's a bit like taking a, an iPhone, which is designed for a particular purpose, and saying, well, I don't really accept that purpose. I'm going to use it as a hammer instead. It, it just doesn't work at all. So that's the first thing. It's, it's designed by God. The second principle that, that's really important in biblical marriage is complementarity. So the man and woman are not the same. It's hard in our society increasingly to to say this, but they, they complement one another. God says that he will make a helper suitable for him. No other helper was found. Not another animal, not another Adam, but an Eve. So this complementary pair is at the heart of marriage. Now, this is massively challenged today too. People will say, well, you know, as long as two people love each other, that's what's at the heart of marriage. And so the thinking goes, it doesn't matter if it's two men or two women. But actually, it's the complementarity that's at the heart of marriage. And, and this becomes very important when we realize that marriage is designed to be a visual aid for the relationship between Jesus and the church. Peter was praying about that a moment ago. Paul says this in Ephesians. The relationship between Christ and the church is pictured in marriage. And in Ephesians, the different roles of men and women are emphasized and shown to mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. The man is to love his wife as Jesus did, sacrificially, causing her to flourish. And the wife is to submit to the loving leadership of the husband. It's that complementarity and the difference between men and women that is crucial in that picture. Now, every time We've sort of made a commitment to say this. Every time we, we mention that male-female difference in relationship, we've got to point out that those dreadful statistics for domestic violence find no justification in this. The husband's role very clearly is loving and sacrificial and not domineering and bullying. Complementarity. Third thing, children. God's design is that children come into the world within a marriage. Now, we go wrong on two ways here. We go wrong if we say that marriage is only for children. The companionship element is the first thing introduced with Adam and Eve. But we also go wrong if we say that marriage has nothing to do with children because quickly they are told to uh, fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth. In, in Malachi, God is rebuking his people who were not treating marriage well. They were divorcing easily. And he says there that he was seeking godly offspring. So, so marriage in God's eyes is a, a one flesh commitment that is designed to produce children. Now, again, we've got to say that there are those who want to have children, but for various reasons have not been able to. And that's an incredibly difficult path to travel along, one of the things that we must be so, so careful of is not to joke with couples about when kids are coming along. For some people, that is a, a devastating comment. 
But, but there's a strand within society's thinking that children get in the way of marriage, and therefore having them is delayed or maybe uh, rejected altogether. But that's to ignore God's intention that a new generation would rise up and call him blessed because they've been nurtured to do that by godly parents, children. Fourthly, not ultimate. For all that we've said about marriage being really key in the Bible, we've got to say that, as Stuart Elliott said, it's voluntary and not obligatory. In other words, it's not necessary, nor is it the goal of the Christian life. Let me point you to two things that underline this. First of all, the only perfect man to have ever walked upon the earth was not married, Jesus. He was perfectly fulfilled. He perfectly obeyed his father's will. He was single. That's so important. Of course, the other thing that implies is that he was a virgin. So neither sex nor marriage is the goal of anyone's life. And the other thing we need to remember then is the teaching of the apostle Paul. Paul was not married when he was an apostle. We don't know if he was at an earlier stage. But he talks about the value of singleness. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, single in other words. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And he's talking particularly to unmarried women in the congregation that he's writing to. And he tells them, do you know what? It's really good to stay unmarried, but sort of get married if you must. That's the sort of thrust of it. But there are advantages to being single. He says you can pursue the Lord without distraction. Now, again, in in Christian circles, we, we tend to just take some of the thinking of the world and baptize it into the church. And and one of the great idols, of course, of our culture is relationships. You've got to have someone. You've got to be with someone. I'm not complete if I'm not with somebody. And we've transferred that. And we say, well, we know that marriage is good. So so we've sort of transferred that and said, well, you've got to be married. As if to say we're nothing if we're not married. And that has all sorts of unintended side effects. So parents sometimes are happier to see a believing child marry an unbeliever than to continue faithful but single. They say, well, at least they have someone. Young girls are brought up thinking that the ultimate goal of their lives is to have that Disney wedding day. And they give little thought of what happens next. I remember asking a couple in a marriage class what they were looking forward about uh, being married and to you about being married. And they, they couldn't think of anything beyond their wedding day. It's just the world's thinking baptized into the church. They were very distressed when I told them that the first 60 years were the hardest as far as marriage was concerned. So marriage is not ultimate. That's something about what it says it's protecting. What does it prohibit? Well, on the one hand, it's pretty obvious. It prohibits adultery. Uh, like the church's relationship to Christ, the relationship between husband and wife is to be exclusive. Individuals leave father and mother and cleave to one another. A new family is uh, developed, is, 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 is created as that bond is there between husband and wife, and it's to be inviolate. And the problem, of course, with the Pharisees in Jesus' day was they, they thought that if, if they just obeyed that very narrow thought of adultery, then they were okay as far as that commandment was concerned. But Jesus made it clear that the commandment was much wider and much deeper 
in its application. Think of the wider bit, first of all. So Jesus in Mark chapter 7 says this, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, we'll come back to that, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus uses that word pornea, the Greek word pornea, for that, it's translated here, sexual immorality. It's the word from which we get the word pornography, obviously. And that word pornea refers to all sexual activity outside of marriage. So, so you can't say, sometimes people say this today, you can't say, well, Jesus never said anything about that particular practice. Well, he did. He used this term that prohibited all sexual activity outside of marriage. So, so it means that, that Jesus is saying that, that, that any sexual activity before marriage is wrong. Sexual practice with someone other than your spouse is wrong. Homosexual practice is wrong. Jesus referred to all of this and more. So, so you see, what the Bible does, as it were, is to say, look, this is what is right, and then all else falls outside of that. But not only does, does Jesus make it clear how wide this commandment goes, he, he also makes it clear how deep it goes. This is what we read in Matthew 5. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, now, that's not saying, of course, that the lustful look is as bad as the actual act. But it is saying that that lust, that desire to have, breaks the commandment. So it's not a sin to notice that someone is beautiful or someone is handsome. But it becomes a sin when that noticing becomes desire. So, so Jesus' words address our 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 thinking, our dreaming, our fantasies, our watching, our browsing, our messaging. He says, this is where you can be a lawbreaker. Now, now we recognize that, that our society is, is saturated with sexuality, and, and, and we, we are in the midst of that, and it's so easy to become desensitized to that and think, well, that's not very serious. But look at what Jesus goes on to say. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, those are some of Jesus' strongest act, words calling us to take radical actual action against sin and against sexual sin especially. And you notice he, he's, he's, not, he's saying a, that he's, he's not talking here about, first of all, the, the actions of the body, but actually about the desires of the heart. So Jesus won't let us say, well, as long as it doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't matter. It's just my private thoughts. No, no, these, these things are, have eternal consequences, Jesus says. So you can see that, that this prohibits everything outside of the marriage relationship, and it goes beyond our actions to our hearts, which means that none of us today can say this commandment doesn't affect me. What should we do? What should we do? We want to say some practical things. John's going to, to do much more of this tonight. And we're hoping to have a little panel tonight and ask a few practical questions as well. But, but let's say a few things. And, and, and as it were, to, to maybe track through some of the stages. First of all, generally, we've got to strive for purity. <coughs> Excuse me. There is a call, if you're a Christian here today, there is a call from God on your life for purity. 
It's true whether we're young or old, whether we're married or not. It's one of the chief battlegrounds of our world today. And maybe we think it's unrealistic, but let's not forget the New Testament world was just as sex-obsessed as our world is today, even more so perhaps. Remember these drastic words that Jesus uses in connection with these issues. This is, is not to be taken lightly. So, so we might paraphrase and say, look, if, if the stuff you're reading causes you to sin, throw it out. If the computer you use causes you to sin, disconnect. If the workplace you work in causes you to sin, change your job. If the friends you hang around with cause you to sin, change your circles. Jesus is saying, do what it takes. Ask yourself this question. What would it take for you to do to take steps forward in purity? Strive for purity. Secondly, marry well. If you're going to marry, so here's a word to those who are younger perhaps. If you're going to marry, and bear in mind all that we've said about the Bible's emphasis on the value of singleness. If you're going to marry, marry well. Now, that, that phrase used to be used, of course, to those who had uh, married into rich families. Let me tell you, there are spiritual riches to be gained through marriage, or there are spiritual poverties to endure. It's the second biggest decision you will make in your life after following Jesus. So, so that means that we don't rush into relationships. You, you, you get to, to know a person well before you date them, not after. And you can't get to know someone through Snapchat. You really can't. Always ask yourself the question, is this person going to help me follow Jesus better? There's no reason to date a person that you would not be happy to marry. That's the point of going out. And if you say, well, I'm far too young to be thinking of marriage, then maybe you're too young to be dating. And don't compromise and marry someone who doesn't share your faith in Jesus. The Bible tells us not to do that. Don't kid yourself about how much you might be an influence on them. You may find your heart entwined with someone with whom you can never share what should be most important to you. Marry well. And, and, and in the light of that also, court carefully. Uh, take it slowly. And don't think that marriage will fix the flaws that you discover in your relationship. It will just make them worse. Marry well. Thirdly, maximize marriage. God values marriage, and therefore we ought to as well. If we're married, we need to invest in our marriages. Good marriages will not happen by accident, but with effort. Remember that Satan is out to destroy your marriage. He will do it in any way that he can. It may be through the threat of adultery. We must recognize, no matter how long you have been married or how happy your marriage has been or is, you must recognize that no marriage is immune from the threat of adultery. So you must know about each other's lives. There should be no secrets. When you stand at the front of a church and you promise to enter into that union where two people become one, that means that all of your life becomes one. No secrets. Your phone should never be off limits to the other person. 
Sometimes I talk to, to people who've got themselves into trouble, and, and the first time they began to notice this was, well, they never left their phone around anymore, and I, I wondered what was going on. So you show people who you've been in contact with. Show your husband or your wife who you've been in contact with. You, 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 you make sure that they know where you are at, at, at all times. So as far as, as attacking a marriage is concerned, it may be through adultery. It, it may be that he wants to just attack your marriage slowly and gradually so that a marriage dies like, as someone has said, a slow descent down a long staircase. And you find yourself living separate lives with no real oneness and no real intimacy. So you don't settle for that. You get help with that. And, and you know, the, the church family needs individual families to be working on their marriages. And here's another thing. There's so much we could say here. When, when things get tough, don't believe the lie that you've married the wrong person. We're, we're all the wrong people. You never marry the right person, unless you're Linda, right? Um, <laughs> you know, had to be said. Um, but but, but you, you never, you, you always marry someone who is broken, as you are. And so when you say, I do, you've married the person that God intends you to be with, even if you married them for the wrong reasons. One last thing. Come to Jesus for mercy. We, we chatted about this this week, and we said, you know, what, what does the tone of this need? And, and I've missed this, I know, but we need to say, look, this is good news. This is, this is good news for broken people. Because this is a, this is a commandment that, that, that searches our hearts and reminds us that we fall short. Maybe you're here today, and you're living with regret, with terrible experiences or sinful decisions. Maybe you're weighed down with shame and guilt. And you know what? Jesus is the friend of sinners. Look at Jesus with the woman at the well. She was a mess. She'd had five marriages. Sixth relationship, she wasn't married. And then she met number seven, the perfect man. And he sees her sin. And yet she is so drawn to him that she rushes to her home village where, where everybody knew everything that she'd ever done. And she says with joy, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. What sort of man is it that can uncover the deepest, messiest stuff about you and you're so thrilled to meet him that you go and tell others. You see, you can do that with Jesus because he's the one who, who confronts your sin to deal with it, to take it, to, to set you free. Come to Jesus for mercy. We're going to explore this further tonight. Please come this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, some of these things go to the very core of who we are and, and deep into our stories and, and touch our 
hopes and our dreams and our shame and our feelings. Lord, how we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ today knows us, knows exactly who we are and where we've been and what we've done and, and what we've regretted and what we've been thrilled over. And thank you that being known by him is not something to be afraid of, but something to rejoice in. So we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to take steps forward in obedience to your commands, but also to run to the one who has perfectly kept them for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.